Well, welcome to uh, episode 66 of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm the Hack, yeah, Hugh Rimmington, and with me, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Pete. How are you holding up? G'day. Not too bad, Hugh. How are you doing? Go, go, okay. We're keeping the kids home from school today. The sniffles have come in and we're, we're taking no chances. Um, and then, you know, I've been reading how kids uh, might be more capable of transferring these things that were initially thought. So, um, but you schools know, are safe, you. That can't. That, that can't be right. Schools are safe. <laughs> I can't. I can't be any clearer than that. You can't be any clearer than that. And that the science is starting to say <laughs> that um, you know maybe they're not quite as safe as we thought. We certainly saw that in the uh, the medical journal of Australia. Some questions about kids. But mm. you know what can you do? We get a frisson of uh, nerves, and then, like most of us, try and press on. But um, it, this, these royal commissions. Let, let me take you to the royal commissions if I can, PVO, because I've got a few yeah, things about it. We've got Royal Commission separately into the disability sector, and we have one into uh, the uh, basically what's amounted to the COVID um, situation. And it has become uh, clear that the glossy assurances that we were getting early on that everything was uh, well under control uh, were not quite so. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, I doubt, I, well, I, I wonder whether. Scott Morrison would have arranged these royal commissions had he known that they were going to contemporaneously be assessing and in a very negative way uh, his government's performance in handling the COVID crisis in respect to aged care and now is, is increasingly emerging in respect to disability services as well. I'm not, I'm not sure he would have been quite as uh, bullish about more royal commissions if he'd known that uh, because he, he must have assumed that these were areas that needed attention and good on him initially for calling the Royal Commissions, frankly, um, because a lot, you know, anyone that's had anything to do with people with either aged care services or disability services knows that there is a lot that needs to get done to, to fix those sectors up. Um, so good on him for calling it, but he would have expected that it was going to be making recommendations in the fullness of time, uh, doing most of the, you know, if you like, picking over mistakes past uh, during the previous administrations of previous prime ministers you know, on his side of the parliament, but also on the other side of the parliament. But lo and behold, in the midst of the COVID crisis, and in particular now, the second wave, of course, hitting Victoria, uh, which as much as he might like to try to shove responsibility on that onto Andrews and hotel quarantining and security guards and whatever else at that state level with public administration problems around the centrality of, of their public health systems, et cetera, et cetera. He might like to do all of that, Hugh, but... Uh, the second wave has exposed problems in aged care and disability services, particularly in Victoria, but writ large around the country. And the evidence seems to be mounting that the lack of a plan was a problem as much as the PM's disputing that, but sure. also uh, also that they were warned about things. You know, we've now seen it emerge that they were warned about staffing problems that would ensue if a second wave happened because of what they learnt from the first wave with what happened with those facilities in New South Wales, but nothing, or little might be the better wording, little seems to have been done uh, to prepare for that. So, so let's unpick that a little bit. First of all, you're quite right. It's, it's not a bad move when you've just come into power to hold a whole host of inquiries and royal commissions. Kevin Rudd was a master at it because then you essentially, you, you don't own past problems. You can say, oh, you know, that was all, you know, that, that lot. I, I'm, I'm the new broom that sweeps clean rather than leaving it for a while and you become part of the dust on the floor. But uh, let's start with the Aged Care uh, Royal Commission because what we're seeing now is more flesh emerging to the initial statement that came from the council assisting the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Peter Rosen QC, 
who made an opening statement, this is the format of these things, in which he said, among other things, that the lessons that were learnt in the first uh, cases that emerged in New South Wales at Dorothy Hedison Lodge and at Newmarch House uh, were, were not learned and passed on. One of the things being that in the pandemic planning, uh, it was believed that there would be a loss of staff inevitably in the case of an infectious disease in a, uh, going through aged care or getting into aged care. And the estimate was that it would fall between 20 to 30%. Now, as we were soon to discover, uh, up to 80, effectively 100% uh, mm. of staff don't turn up. There's a reason for that. Some, as has emerged, become extremely nervous about going there. Why not? Why would you not be nervous? And others, under the very rules that are being laid out by the health um, department, because they've become in contact with people who've been infected, uh, have to quarantine. And very quickly, because the close contacts are, of course, their colleagues, they also have to quarantine. And that means that almost immediately you lose all the staff. That experience emerged uh, in part at Dorothy Henderson Lodge, but then almost entirely at Newmarch House. And yet, somehow or other, those critical learnings, to use the, the buzzword of the day, disappeared like scotch mist, only to have it catastrophically re-emerge, you know, weeks and months later uh, in places like St. Basil's in Melbourne. Yeah, and, and the culpability for that, it would seem, rests with the feds, doesn't it? I mean, they run aged care. Uh, they were presented with evidence and concerns in advance about what would happen next time that advance notice was sufficient, seemingly months sufficient for something to have been put in place far greater than any thing that we have seen put in place by now. It didn't happen. Uh, and literally hundreds of people who have died. Now it doesn't get that much more serious than that. I wouldn't have thought very hard to sidestep responsibility on that one. I would have thought for the Commonwealth government yeah. easier, easier for a prime minister, by the way, if we sort of project where this may or may not go to sidestep responsibility, because, you know, ministers can fall on their swords. So can bureaucrats. He can argue that, you know, I did not know, uh, you know, the, the chain of command never got to me. That's all part of what we're looking at in the Royal Commission. So, you know, this isn't going to bring down Scott Morrison or anything like that, but he'll lose a bit of paint over this, you would think. And he might even lose a minister or, or, uh, or certainly uh, have a bit of heat applied for a sustained period of time. This goes a little bit to what you've said earlier, that the, that the aged care minister role has, has too little value in the machinery of government. So that there should be, that the buck does stop with him because even though he can't be expected, as he might say, I don't hold a hose, mate. Um, the whole purpose of the Westminster system is to have the escalating upwards of major critical information so that the decision-making can be held at the very top, theoretically the most competent um, people with the, vast, the, the widest reach, which is cabinet and ultimately the prime minister. So I re recall the press conference when uh, Scott Morrison came out, when St. Basil's uh, in Melbourne, which was really the, the first of the worst, if you like, coming out of Melbourne. Mm. And he, he made, a, you know, his statement was a, a statement about essentially the cavalry coming over the hill because the military uh, had in the late at night uh, put personnel into St. Basil's to fill shifts. They were called on to do a night shift because they simply couldn't find anybody uh, to look after people at St. Basil's. And so the feds had come through with, uh, with the military brave men and women who went into a place which would have been really 
quite confronting. There would have been people there dying, uh, people infected with COVID, uh, their own concerns about their own possibilities of getting infect, uh, infected, people who we know had uh, neurogeriatric conditions, essentially dementia and other conditions who would have been difficult to manage. Uh, this was what would have confronted those people going into those uh, centres. And yet it needn't have been. Mm. Well, it's the casualization of the workforce is, is a big part of the problem here, isn't it? I mean, we see the same thing with hotel quarantining with security guards. I mean, it, it would appear that there was a real problem with that out of Victoria. Uh, and it looks at this stage, fingers crossed for everyone in New South Wales, like the, you know, the, the problem has been avoided despite uh, a problem or a breach with security guards and, and one security guard in particular that was working across uh, a host of different sectors because they're, they're casualized, you know, so you've got training issues, you've got casualization, you've got them becoming potential super spreaders if they get it, not just within an aged care facility or within a hotel quarantine, although less so the latter, uh, but then where they go thereafter, right? So it's what they bring into the centre, but it's also where they then spread it from outside. Uh, and it's because the, the pay is low uh, and casualisation naturally reduces training and, 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 and so forth, potentially. But it also just, um, you know, it, it means that there's no targeted personnel uh, in one centre, and that is never more important than in aged care, is it, Hugh? Because you know, you, you're like, you, you know, we know that people in aged care need acute care, but we also know that in a time like a pandemic, uh, the, the ability to to tighten up a centre is oh so important, but made that much harder when you've got people trying to make a buck, understandably, um, flittering between centres uh, as they work a few days here and a few days there and maybe a day shift in one and then a night shift in the other, quite apart from what that says about the hours that they might be working and therefore uh, the lost attention to detail potentially through fatigue, just for starters. Yeah, getting information. I mean, it's interesting. If we look at the Sydney situation of the hotel quarantine guard who was at the Marriott down at Circular Quay, uh, in the course of the tracing, it followed where he went subsequently, including shifts mm. at uh, the Flemington markets, the big Sydney markets. It's actually in Homebush in the suburb there, but also uh, at the Parramatta courts. But he was doing shifts, which shift after shift, back after back, overnight, two hours sleep, back onto another sleep, uh, onto another shift, and then going through the day and then backing it up for another night shift. He was sleeping virtually no hours a day. This guy, mm. a couple of hours snatched here and there. Now, no one is working under that sort of tempo unless they're either trying to seize the work while it's there, or um, alternatively, the, the pay and the conditions are such that you have to work like that in order to turn a coin. And, and that goes to those issues. But I know that taking it back to the feds, you are concerned that you perceive essentially perhaps something in the character makeup of Scott Morrison. So it's not just that the machinery of government might have some, a little a bit of sand in the cogs, but there's another issue that's going on in there. Yeah, look, it just seems like it, to me, it just strikes me as a character flaw, but perversely, uh, perhaps a political, um, you know, a political upside for him that he doesn't seem to take responsibility. I, I read a piece uh, in the Oz, which you may have seen, you know, where I talked about uh, Harry S. Truman, the former president of the United States at the tail end of World War II and, and, and thereafter he, he won the subsequent election in 48. 
uh, where he wasn't expected to win. In fact, I've got a copy of that newspaper, Hugh, you know, where, where you know, the Chicago newspaper where uh, Truman held it up and it said Dewey wins. But of course, that's because the votes hadn't all come in. The, the editors jumped the gun and, and Truman actually won that 48 election. But that's a, that was a before the 24 hour deadline. That's true. That's true. But he, uh, so anyway, so he won then. He obviously he wrapped up in, in 52. Um, and he finished as one of the most unpopular presidents, according to the opinion polls, in the history of America. Uh, Donald Trump might be, you know, prepared to push the envelope on that. We'll see how he travels. But uh, he had a sign on his desk, Harry Truman, which said the buck stops here. You know, now he unashamedly uh, would always take the view that I'm the boss. So I wear the good and the bad. The buck stops with me. Now, I just it seems to me in Scott Morrison, I see a, what I believe to be a character flaw when it comes to taking responsibility where he's not willing to do that. In fact, he shovels it off all the time, but it's probably a political upside for him because it inculcates him from political damage. Uh, it means that you know a certain quotient of the population believe him when he shovels off responsibility. Sometimes that might be fair, often not. But he certainly he does have a sign on his desk that says, I stop these with a picture of an asylum seeker boat. But he doesn't have a sign Harry Truman style saying the buck stops here. You, know, you look at the things he's shoveled it off on, you know, sports, rorts, now, you know, the aged care thing, certainly quarantine, despite the constitution, the states are running that. He's very good. You know, the NDIS even, you know, with the robo-debt disaster, uh, when asked questions about it, you know, the taking of responsibility is not what he does. He shovels it off on someone else and then tries to move the debate on. Now, what does that mean? Uh, I think politically it might work for him to a point. Uh, you probably run out of runway on it eventually but it certainly seems to be at the moment. But the other problem, the worry from a public policy perspective, I think, is that it means that if he's not prepared to take responsibility for things that are, for example, being highlighted in a Royal Commission, I think it becomes less likely that he's going to act on the very things that a Royal Commission says were his responsibility and were failures because he will deny the premise. And he likes that line, doesn't he, Hugh, at press conferences? I deny the premise of your question. And then he goes off and answers something else. So I think that's a problem even if it's not a political problem for him and it's a political upside for him. Well, it, it, I mean, it is a sad truth that possibly uh, they are the skills uh, is to um, accrue all the good and, and, and dispense the bad. It's not, it's not, uh, he's not the first to do it. Uh, we've spoken before That's about true. Bob, Bob Carr's brilliant skills at that, but it also does mean that politicians only have so much energy in a sense. They have so much like any human being, only so much they can do in a day. And if a proportion of your energy, a goodly proportion is being spent on seeing where you can um, direct blame. Mm. You're not really spending that amount of energy on how can we fix the problem. Uh, you're fixing the political problem for yourself, but you're not necessarily fixing the actual underlying problem for society, which is hopefully what you're there to do. Uh, I want, if I can, that the aged care stuff is potentially uh, pretty difficult for the government. It's, it's certainly uh, grueling to look at the stuff that's emerging when you can, if, from the viewpoint of people whose loved ones were in these centres or subsequently in the Victorian centres. The Disability Royal Commission, again called by Scott Morrison, but not with a foresight about the, the, the pandemic, has also revealed terrible circumstances, awful circumstances for Australians living with disabilities where in the case of one person and evidence that came up yesterday, uh, a woman who, whose carer uh, wasn't able to turn up. It's not quite clear why, but um, 
uh, but the person had to it was lay in bed for nine days with no food other than muesli bars, no care to personal care, which I presume goes to toileting or other matters, uh, mm. for nine days. Uh, of another whose carer came down with coronavirus so badly, in fact, that uh, uh, she wound up in an induced coma. This is the carer. And as a consequence, the person who needed to be cared for, there was no one to step in. And this shows an insight into how paper thin are the support structures for all the NDIS, the energy that's gone into it, the thinking about it, how paper thin the structures are for the most vulnerable. And, you know, there's got to be some accounting in societal terms for what yeah. has happened in this pandemic. Well, I, know, I know we've got to take a break, so we'll probably come back to this in some detail, but, but let me just say this. I, I think, at, at, you know, there's a lot to unpick about all of that, but at its core, I think we need and we're overdue to have a debate in this country about what we want our society to be and how prepared we are or aren't to foot the bill for how much it will cost to achieve that. And things like disability support, better aged care support, a look at the pension, a look at New Start. These are all questions which are of a moral and social order dimension, which require a fiscal reality check to decide how important it is. Society made the decision many years ago that Medicare universal health, despite the cost, was something that we wanted to define ourselves by. After a long debate uh, with one side of politics disagreeing with it before they came on board, John Howard was the person that long disagreed who eventually came on board for the Liberals. But we need to have this debate because we might not decide ultimately that we're prepared to go down a more sort of, if you like, Scandinavian route when it comes to uh, taxes and, and extent of government. But we also might decide to go down that route rather than the more hands-off governmental approach of somewhere like, for example, the United States. But that debate has to be the starting point, in my view, and then we can get into the nitty-gritty uh, thereafter. Well, let's uh, have a go at that debate. We'll take a quick break and uh, talk to you in a moment. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is episode 66 of uh, The Professor and the Hack with PVO, Professor uh, Peter Van Onselen, Network uh, Political Editor for the 10 Network. I'm Hugh Rimminson. The Hack. Uh, you were saying we need to have a debate societally um, about what kind of place we want to be. Uh, I've been playing this little mind game with myself, and that goes something like this. Let's say a vaccine emerges tomorrow. Uh, mm. It is available to all. Distribution is not a problem. Uh, pay is not a problem. It's free. It's to everybody who wants it. And we have it uh, across the country. It, it is deemed by everyone to be safe. In other words, the coronavirus as an issue uh, is gone. Yep. So what are we left with? We're left with a country which, even if, it's, if, the, if the pandemic stops tomorrow, uh, has debt on a level that wouldn't have been considered possible uh, even a year ago. So mm. whatever choices we want to make about the country we are going forward, even if the pandemic ends right now, it's going to be constrained by the fact that we emerge from the rubble, uh, Berlin-like in 1945, and say, um, how do we make a good society loaded with debt, uh, 
where do we put our priorities? Take it away, PDM. Well, I, the first thing to probably note in that scenario is that uh, by global standards, we'll still be pretty well off. You know, our debt to GDP would be somewhere around 50% versus a lot of countries where it's not only over 100%, but it's in many cases well double that even at closer to 200% and even beyond. Uh, okay, okay. So, like so, so, that's, so you've, made a per you've made an excellent point there. So does that mean that the rhetoric around debt, because... Uh, we may or may not have a debt crisis in Australia. We certainly have a rhetorical sense that debt is way out of line. So do we, do we start to re-examine, in fact, what is a tolerable amount well, of debt? Well, I, th I think we have to because there's nothing wrong with carrying debt depending on what you've spent it on. So, okay, fine, throughout the coronavirus crisis, you spend debt to try to save jobs, save the economy writ large. Few people would argue about that. They might argue at the margins about the extent of spending too much or too little. But you, you generate growth with debt potentially uh it's, it, as long as you're not funneling debt into just straight up recurrent expenditure unless that is social change based recurrent expenditure which we'll get to if you are putting it into things that are ultimately productivity lifting which some recurrent expenditure can be by the way then there's nothing wrong with debt because it is actually growing the pie so to speak which means that you push your way out of debt faster uh, and therefore get something for that debt. And it doesn't just have to be infrastructure spending. That's what, you know, a lot of economic liberals like to talk about in terms of debt, uh, infrastructure spending, productivity, garnering uh, investment in that sense. If you make a better society with your debt, uh, which can mean higher payments around things like disability support and aged care assistance, you are freeing up human capital, for example, in the economy. Uh, you are also creating... Um, I know this is a little bit more waffly, but it is true. You are creating a better social contract between the individual and the state, which can then lift productivity in its own terms by lifting happiness as an index. Labor got pilloried for talking about a happiness index uh, some months before the pandemic by Josh Frydenberg, but it's a legitimate thing. So there's all of those elements that we have to think about, but there will be people who will be profoundly against that. And we may not be able to get past a debt debate because it's been so defining in this country for so long. I mean, one of the obvious issues that has to be dealt with, quite apart from aged care, what we've seen, the, the, the state of uh, particularly the long-term disabled, there's also the question which has really emerged, of course, everyone has been talking about it, you've been talking about it, about the casualization of the workforce. Now, the casualization of the workforce is a byproduct of what seemed to be a positive productivity-inducing element of the economy, and that is flexibility in the workforce. So... That argument has gone. Business argued for flexibility. There's been that long move through the union movement. The arguments were going from the 80s um, during the days of the accord was to try to find ways in which you could get more flexibility in the workforce. So we've reached the stage where there's maximum flexibility in the workforce or close to it, but such a casualized workforce that there's no security there. Can you uh, deliver, can a government deliver uh, more security in the workforce without choking off uh, business because flexibility has suddenly become constrained? Well, that's a great question. Look, the short answer is not in a globalised economy if large other swathes of the world are acting differently and therefore requiring us, if you like, to become part of that herd. I wonder, though, whether or not the post-pandemic environment will lend itself to that, which has been the case around globalisation for decades, or whether it will lend itself towards 
a more protectionist structure, which therefore can allow nations like Australia, for example, not to choke off business to the same extent by lifting workers' rights, because it's just those are just um, you know, societal well-being decisions that get made. Uh, so it's so hard to predict. You know, futurists try to do this all the time, but often uh, get it wrong anyway. They're, but you know what I think is fascinating about what you raised there, Hugh, is just how multi-dimensioned and how deeply ideological these debates will ultimately end up being. And I wonder, I wonder how equipped society, business, and indeed politicians are to have these sort of highfalutin debates because politics has been dumbed down to the practical uh, for so long now and ideological debates haven't really been had in any major form since maybe the early 90s. Uh, certainly they were there in the, in, the, in the 80s. But I wonder whether the political class of today is up to the challenge of having that kind of debate. And that's before you even get to the reality that the nature of politics, I think, is even less suited to these sort of debates now, even if you had individuals there who are up ideologically for the discussion intellectually because the nature of, of politics has become so base and so reactionary and so driven by um, short-term forces uh, of electoral politicking. But this is the upside. It's, if there is to be any upside from a pandemic, this is it, surely. Uh, you know, we, we, we've seen Sarah McManus uh, has described how she went into a meeting at the start of the pandemic in early March with Christian Porter and the heads of business and they had all kinds of fights that were on the boil at that stage, just the normal, you know, work, labor versus capital, capital fights. And she said, uh, all bets are off. We're here to save lives. We're here to save jobs. I'm willing to do anything, et cetera, et cetera. And they, nothing much happened to that meeting. She said it again at a second meeting a week later. And it was only after that that she got contacted by a Christian Porter saying, let's, let's go and have a chat. And, and so... You, you know, so what we saw there was in the space of really turning on a dime, a couple of meetings, and suddenly, uh, for the time being, the union movement is in there with business. It won't last in those terms, but but trying to all work together on on a common ground, it, you know, maybe this has been, you know, might be enough to change mm. politics and well, the era of politics. I'm a pessimist about it, um, but I hope I'm wrong. Uh, again, <laughs> like I was on this very first podcast when it came to predicting the last election result. Uh, the reason I'm a pessimist is because he, here's what I foresee uh, as a sort of a broad brush interpretation of the next two elections. For God's sakes, it's not a prediction if Media Watch is listening. Uh, the, the first thing, the next election I foresee it being very hard for Scott Morrison to lose because even though we may well still have double digit unemployment, which we aren't at yet, but we are predicted to be at by then. And it may not have come off, even though debt will be high, even though the economy may well be sluggish, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I see him winning that election by just simply arguing, we're not labor. Don't trust labor on the economy. Things will be so much worse under them. And in a very simplistic way, I think voters will buy that and buy the Morrison product as a consequence. The following election is the fascinating one. And it could go either way, of course. But if Labor is to win the following election to that, so we're now forecasting five years forward, it, I believe, would do it under a really simplistic agenda for pushing in the other direction, which is you've given these guys four terms, whatever it's at by then, five terms, four terms. Um, they have not brought unemployment under control. Debt has continued to spiral workers are getting continually screwed uh, and is this the society you want to live in? But 
at superficial level, that might sound like an ideological debate where we're looking to transform some of those elements. If somebody believes that that's the, the direction that we should go in the social contract and the compact between government and individuals. But I don't believe Labor would embrace it that way. I believe they would embrace it in a populist way where they would be pushing back with too much on that front without the actual engaged debate about where and how things should change. So I foresee the big debates around what government and what the economy and what society should look like being just over the horizon in the way that the rhetoric goes back and forth. But I believe it will do it in either a populist way or in a fear-mongering way um, about the other side of politics, which makes it a very partisan, hyper-partisan way. And I don't, and, and all of that, by the way, this is a, the scarier bit, all of that may well be overwhelmed by nationalism in the debate, depending on how unstable the world we live in is and how protectionist countries are or aren't out the other side of the pandemic. Well, futurism is, uh, is, always, is always different, but let's play the game just for the moment. So uh, Morrison for 2022, an election in 2025, who Jim Chalmers leading the, the Labour Party, essentially well, they, they, it's, it's time argument. Yeah, they'd, they'd probably need someone like Jim Chalmers to get Queensland back, potentially, unless the It's Time argument was so strong that the baseball bats in Queensland were there for the conservative side of politics because they'd been in power for so long and people were doing it tough, in which case it wouldn't almost matter that there was a Queenslander or not. But I think Scott Morrison is clever enough to get out before that 2025 election. I mean, I foresee uh, Scott Morrison potentially winning the next election on the arguments that I just put forward and then two years into the following term, seeing how buggered everything is and retiring on his terms. So he would have been in power for around six years, won two elections, the first of which was completely unexpected, ridden us through a pandemic uh, and leaving on his terms the first Prime Minister since Menzies to do so. He might have only served roughly half as long, a little over half as long as Howard. But, you know, on the Conservative side of politics, leaving on your own terms sort of makes up a little bit for that. Uh, and, you know, I could see him doing that. Uh, I know that most people completely disagree with that because while premiers tend to do that, prime ministers don't. But I think Morrison could be canny enough for that. All right. Well, that's the, the personality of the politics and the, the, the sort of the shaping of the country as we, uh, as we come through this, uh, this decade to come. Uh, we'll, we'll continue that conversation in, in other lusty chats. Uh, PVO, great to talk to you as always. Same here. Talk again next week. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.